Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. This week, as part of our Open Future initiative, exploring the limits of free speech, the role of government and individual rights, we're asking, does the West need a revival of old-fashioned values? Since 1990, the number of Americans saying they don't identify with any faith has tripled to 22%. Among millennials, it's even higher, over a third. For a country founded on Protestant Christian principles, that's a dramatic shift. And for one controversial figure in the public debate, it's also a key reason behind what he sees as a fundamental unmooring of American society. Ben Shapiro is a fervent fighter for conservative values. His podcast, The Ben Shapiro Show, is one of the most listened to in the world. But his comments on gender, Islam, welfare, climate change and a host of other topics have made him as many enemies as they have fans. He was editor-at-large of Breitbart News, home of the alt-right, before starting his own outlet, The Daily Wire. He enjoys adding fuel to the political fire, and now he wants to prove he has moral philosophy on his side too. So he's written a book, The Right Side of History, How Reason and Moral Purpose Made the West Great. Hello, Ben, and welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You once tweeted that the right side of history might be the most morally idiotic phrase of modern times. History is not God and it has no morality. So what's changed your mind? So nothing has changed my mind about the, the actual phrase. It's, it's, the dependence is, is on how it's used. So the, the reason that I tweeted that is because President Obama was very fond of saying that eventually his perspective would somehow be justified by history. So if you opposed him politically, you were on the wrong side of history. Eventually, history would come around to his point of view. And I always thought that that was foolish because, again, you don't know what history is going to do. History may, in fact, not justify what your point of view is at the current moment. It was, it was sort of meant ironically uh, in the title of the book. There, there's a difference between using the phrase prospectively as a club to wield against political opponents, as in history will redeem my sentiment now. And looking back at history and saying, OK, what has, what, what's good about history and why did it get good? And you do spend quite a lot of time talking about what you think got bad. So what is it that you think fundamentally, just to lay out our terms a bit, what's been eroded? Well, I, th- I think what's been eroded, uh, unfortunately, what, what's eroding, uh, as we currently speak, is the fundamental principles upon which the civilization is based. The idea that each of us are individuals made in the image of God, that we each have individual value, that we can use reason to have discussions with one another, uh, which is the fundamental underlying assumption for free speech and for democracy. Uh, The idea that as individuals, we have rights that are independent of the government providing those rights. Uh, All of those values, I think, are, are being eroded. And they're being eroded because, first of all, we got rid of some of the assumptions, or at least we fought some of the religious underpinnings of, of the West. And then, in turn, we've, we've sort of fought back against the notion of reason itself, and we're reverting to a sort of tribalism we see in our politics that's getting quite ugly. So it's a faith-based argument, fundamentally, for you. But already, if we look at that argument, whether it's the Judeo bit or the Christian bit, many people simply interpret those ideas differently. They have done Throughout history, they do so the more in pluralist societies. So you're on slightly shifting ground, aren't you, from the get-go? Well, not really, in the sense that 
the, the argument that I make from the get-go is there are certain fundamental prim- principles that have always been held and have not always been fulfilled in Judeo-Christian values, and that those are in tension and in constant conflict with and, and rubbing up against, but mutually buttressing, and counterintuitively, the ideas of reason. So the, the whole point of the book is not that everybody needs to go back to church alone. It's that we all need to use the ideas that were also brought to us by the Greeks and balance those and use them in tension with the ideas that were brought to us by, by Judeo-Christian ideals. So I'm not claiming that, the, that a, a sort of theocracy is the, is the purpose of life here. My point is that there are certain religious fundamental principles that were created by Judeo-Christian value systems and that those struggled with and occasionally gained dominance over in unfortunate ways, reason itself, and then reason gained dominance over religion, and that had similarly unfortunate effects. I say in the conclusion to the book that civilizations that discard Judeo-Christian values end up in really dark places, and civilizations that discard reason end up in similarly dark places. I think that the mistake of secular humanism is to believe, like the French Revolution believed, that you strangle the last king with the entrails of the last priest, and that what arises from that is some sort of glorious utopia. I don't think that that's correct. I think that you have to understand where it is that we have come from so that we can actually take what is good from what we have had and maintain that and cherish that. Let's go down to brass tacks a bit with some examples. Sure. So a lot of things that made the West great in terms of wealth and subsequent power can't always be easily defined as moral in the sense that you've laid out. We have empires built in large part, for instance, on slavery. Of course, that's true. It's also true that slavery is a universal human institution until its abolition essentially by the Judeo-Christian West. Yeah, that took quite a while, though, didn't it? It's not that slavery... Of course, it took quite a while. And that, that of course, is, is a great moral evil. This is this constant interplay between these two poles. Again, this is not the argument I'm making is not that civilization was suddenly brought into being at one moment in time and then progress stopped. That's not the argument of the book in any way, shape or form. The argument of the book is that there are these principles that are in constant turmoil with each other and that the interplay between these principles creates the West, and that to ignore some of those principles, to read some of those principles out of history, to assume that those principles can be destroyed at will, and we can maintain the upper, the upper levels of a building whose foundations we've just done away with, I think that's a mistake. So you talk about this new social fabric, just to shift the metaphor from, from buildings to fabric, but it's not so sure. far. <laughs> what is the solution? What would the new social fabric look like? How would we know if we had begun to recreate it in the way that you think would be beneficial? Well, I mean, I think that we have to have a common definition of what liberty constitutes, what choice constitutes. And I think that we also have to uh, rebuild uh, a lot of the sort of social institutions that have collapsed. Now, historically, those have been churches. I mean, just realistically speaking, the place where most people found their common cause and common meaning was in churches. But social science research says they don't only have to be churches. They, They can be social clubs. They can be bowling leagues, other ways of reaching out to each other. But the more durable those ways are of reaching out to each other, the more we can at the same time maintain our individuality and also see the common humanity in the other. This is the, the sort of point that Robert Putnam makes in Bowling Alone, the, the Harvard sociologist. He, he makes the point that diversity itself is not necessarily a strengthening factor in a society, but when there's a society that has a common purpose, then the diversity definitely helps the society. And, and I think that one of the things we've seen in the West is as multiculturalism has tended to come to the fore, the, the attempt to shatter the common purpose and then maintain the diversity and expect that all you'll get is benefit, I think is, is a bit foolhardy. Let, let's look at the interplay of religion and ideas that you've laid out for us there. I just scribbled a, a few challenges along the way, and I'm, I'm sure there are many more, where religion, organised religion, has challenged the right and the place of 
individuals and where religion and the Judeo-Christian tradition that you, you refer to has often taken us into a position of challenging the right of politics, not only the right, but in this case. So it could be, for instance, liberation theology. It could be Catholic social teaching. Ecumenical movements may be more friendly to multiculturalism than you are. Now, maybe there are no hard rights and wrongs here, but it does seem there are quite a few challenges to your view of what religion stands for in this argument. For sure. I mean, there are some people who disagree with me on, on what religion stands for, and that's their prerogative. I mean, I'm not sure how to answer the idea that there are folks who disagree with me. I'm sure there are. Uh, I'm not saying that, that no one disagrees with my assessment of what Western civilization is. I'm saying that my assessment of Western civilization is more correct than theirs. That's the essential well, well, yeah, of any book I would You would say assume, that, right? wouldn't you? As a, as of course, a, right. <laughs> I mean, I, I have a bit of a vested interest in that case, sure. Uh, but let's, let's follow that thought, too. I mean, you say you have a vested interest, and of course, we're generally convinced that our, our view of the world has a, an implicit superiority to others. But clearly, you have a big following. You're laying out a, a stall here. You're taking on some ideas that you've embraced over years in, in what you've written now. Why should we listen to you? What is different about your perspective or authority? I don't think that I'm making an, an argument from authority per se. I mean, I, th I think people should take the argument on its own merits. But the, the point that I'm making is that all the stuff that I think we generally agree is good in the West, freedom, liberalism, democracy, human rights, the, the notion of an extraordinarily prosperous economy. I mean, as, as I lay out in the introduction, we live at the most prosperous free time in the history of humanity. How did those things come about? Because the question isn't, what bad things did Western civilization do alone? I mean, we should obviously look at that stuff. That stuff is important. But I think it's important to note that the, the great difference that has happened in the world is the West. If you believe that the West has had a generalized beneficial and salutary impact on, on the world, particularly over the last two centuries, we're going to have to look to the values that inspired that because that is something that's different. But we also have to look at the challenges within it. Of course. We, you say at one point we used to see each other as brothers and sisters. Well, up to a point and, and a point. not always, right. but not the 1% versus the 99% or the privileged versus the victim. So you seem to be pointing there at a well, maybe a fetishizing of, of difference or division. But isn't the conversation about privilege, about prosperity, about the gains of prosperity and who shares them, isn't that just a very old religious message, which is that we are to look after those weaker than ourselves and to keep thinking about it proactively. Therefore, what the West stands for must keep looking at itself and must keep changing. Well, I mean, I certainly agree that, that the basic notion of, of fairness itself is sort of embedded in the human mind, a notion of fairness that I largely believe is incorrect, which is the, the fairness of outcome. With that said, th there's nothing in, in, I think, basic religious theology that suggests that just because somebody is successful and somebody else is not successful, that some sort of cosmic injustice has been done. I think that in, in secular countries, what we've seen is the attempt to supplant a religious-based social fabric with a governmental fabric. The idea being that we all agree that we have to take care of our neighbors. I mean, I talk in that section about this idea that as a religious person, I want to care for my neighbor. It's a biblical injunction. That's not the same thing as suggesting that an overarching government has the power to confiscate wealth from some and give it to others. Well, the disagreement over that point sits right at the heart of the political debate in America. You lament the fact that it's become so acrimonious. You've said politics has become a blood sport. So what can be done about that? Well, I think that the first thing that can be done is to recognize that we actually do in the West share a lot more in common than separates us. I think that we 
have to agree on some fundamental principles. I've said the idea of freedom of speech, the idea that speech is not violence, the notion that we can convince each other with argumentation that reason actually matters. If we agree on all of those things and then we are willing to grant the other side of the debate the credibility to make its argument, then we are likely to have a less acrimonious debate. I think one of the things that, that has happened is that we have decided that thanks to narratives of victimization and privilege, some of which are rooted in real history, but I think draw a bad conclusion, what we've decided instead is that we have to argue from identity as opposed to arguing from the notion that we are all individual human beings that have the capacity for reason. That's a really Greek notion. The idea it is that- a really Greek notion. And the Greeks also had very fevered and quite intense conversations that have come down to us across thousands of years. But it seems quite odd to hear people arguing for an end or a smoothing over of division who seems to me you quite like division. I mean, you like pitching into the argument, often sure. in very strong terms, which some people find divisive and think simply amplifies that sort of screaming chamber. Are you a bit guilty of the very thing that you say you want to cure? You know, I, I'm sure I am. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work on it. <laughs> you know, I think that one, one of the things that, that we Give all do... Give us the evidence that you're working on it. What are you working on? Well, well, I mean, I think that the book is one attempt, but I mean, if you look at the various conversations that I've had on my Sunday special, if you look at the various debates that I've had with people ranging from Michael Shermer, an atheist, to Sam Harris, an atheist, if you look at the fact that I have reached out to many folks on the left to, to have discussions with them on topics, if you look at my actual college appearances, right, not just the, the two-minute clipped-out YouTube Shapiro destroys kind of stuff, but you actually look at the exchanges that I have with college students on campus, these are very sober, rational non-demonizing discussions that I have with people. So are you saying that you disown that kind of way of handling clips or of promoting you that rely on, I'm sure we'll hear it after this show as others, Shapiro destroys... McKelvey I mean, or the I, household I, I, the, cat or AOC or <laughs> <laughs> whoever it is. I mean, I, let's put it this way. Do, do, is that what I want from the debate? No. Is that a way of getting people to watch deeper content? Sure. I mean, we also have to acknowledge how the market works and the market does work in a way to to generate these sorts of, of views on those sorts of videos. We don't make the vast majority of those. And we, I, when I have control of it, I try to downplay that sort of stuff. I also make distinctions between you know, various political factions. So for example, we sell a, a leftist tears hot or cold tumbler. I don't think that leftists and liberals are the same. And I've made that distinction a thousand times in my writings and, and in my speeches. But the, the sort of idea here is that we do live in a fraught political time. And if I can use the methodologies of gaining eyeballs to get people to look into deeper content, then I'm going to do that as opposed to simply disengaging from the realities of, of the political world. Now, with, with all of that said, I do think that there is a, a large scale difference between the kind of partisan bickering that, that we're talking about and the actual tribal political warfare that we're seeing. So what I describe at the beginning of the book is not people having normal, fraught, intense political debate. I actually like that sort of stuff. In fact, I sort of wish that we here in the United States did what, what you do in Parliament, where people can essentially yell at the Prime Minister every so often. Oh, we're certainly doing a bit of that right now. Let's just come back briefly, if we could, to then what is the responsibility of people with particularly influential presence on social media platforms? It would be fair to say that you are one of them. Do you have any moral responsibility to diminish divisions? Well, only where the divisions are bad faith divisions. So I don't have a moral responsibility to downplay my differences with Ilhan Omar, with Bernie Sanders. What I do have a responsibility to do is say that these are discussions that we can have about issues and that 
I am not divided from Bernie Sanders by virtue of my background, that I'm not a member of a tribe that prevents us from having a conversation in the first place. The, the sort of tribal politics that we are seeing and that I think does in some ways escalate toward violence is a politics where we say, you can't have a discussion with me because you have not had my experiences. The intersectional politics of the United States is really dangerous. And it's not just on the left side of the aisle, it's on the right side of the aisle as well. Well, we're speaking, talking of, of violence, real uh, violence, terrible violence. New Zealand, a self-declared white supremacist, murders 50 people and injures another 15, two mosques in Christchurch in New Zealand. The killer streams the whole thing on Facebook and, as far as the evidence is emerging, has been consuming a steady diet of extremist hate online. Now, there's clearly an argument here over cause and correlation in these things. But where do you stand on that example? So it, it depends. It's a bit of a broad question. My general opinion is that unless you are actively advocating violence, you are not responsible for violence. This has been my consistent opinion for years. Uh, I don't think that Bernie Sanders is responsible for the congressional baseball shooting. And I don't believe that Donald Trump is responsible for what happened in Christchurch. I think that we should all be careful with our rhetoric. I don't think that's quite the same thing. What about, also, well, okay, let's, let's, let me just break in there. Then what about the platforms when you say individuals cannot, and I might question you on that because you can nudge people along uh, lines of suggestibility, perhaps. But isn't there a responsibility for the platforms here? We're talking about uh, Facebook in, in this case, and that, that's very much in the news at the moment. You're really saying there's no responsibility here for being the carrier of messages along this path to extreme violence. Well, I mean, it depends on, on where along the path you're talking about. If you're talking about, does Facebook have a responsibility not to broadcast footage of people engaging in shootings. Of course, that's true. Does Facebook have a responsibility to shut down violent threats? Absolutely. But that stuff doesn't fall within the purview of free speech. I, I think that do, does the government have the capacity to determine which speech is, is bad speech versus which speech is good speech? That's not a power I'm willing to grant to government. Well, government at the moment obviously seems to be not having much impact at all because the algorithmic nudge idea simply takes someone who may start out tending in a direction along, nudged along by algorithm to the next and most extreme bit of content online. So never mind the government for a minute. It, there are other ways in which we could surely decide whether that is acceptable or not. And I, I'm not sure what you really think about that. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that there is a great way to do that. And it depends how the algorithm is designed. I mean, I assume there are human designers of the algorithms, but I'm not technologically advanced enough, frankly, to know exactly how the algorithms work. So uh, here, here's what I can say, just from a, an intellectual point of view, to connect the ideas of, for example, I've seen people trying to connect me or Sam Harris or Jordan Peterson to the ideology of a white supremacist who shoots up a mosque. I think that is vile. And any attempt to make that linkage would have to explain how that linkage exactly works. And attempting to use the fact that isolated people have watched videos that are extraordinarily popular online that have millions of views, and then using that as an excuse to debunk entire worldviews that have nothing to do with the overall worldview of the shooter, I find to be intellectually dishonest in the extreme. Well, leaving that particular example to one side, I suppose the reason you sometimes get that argument thrown at you is that you use quite out there language. You've talked about debunking the myth of the tiny radical Muslim minority in a video that was criticised quite widely as being Islamophobic. Do you sometimes stand back and say, I might have gone too far? I mean, sure. I think any good person has to sit there and, and think whenever something terrible happens or even when something not terrible is happening, you know, be self-critical and, and try and determine 
could I have done better here? Now, the particular video that you're citing is a complete recitation of Pew Research statistics. So that, that particular video being used as evidence that I'm Islamophobic when I'm literally just reading poll results, uh, I, I've always found to be kind of shocking. I've always found shocking also the notion that if you criticize radical Islam or if you criticize views that are radical, that this is somehow you justifying the murder of innocent people who are not radical or justifying murder on the basis of views itself. That's, that's a jump that I, I don't see anyone rational making. Um, but, you know, there are, there are a lot of irrational people who want to connect speech with violence. And I, this, this, by the way, is, is a dangerous thing. I mean, trying to suggest that speech itself is a form of incentivization of violence uh, and therefore it must be curbed if we don't like it or if it crosses a particular line. I don't know who draws where that line is. And, and, believe, is, and, is, and I've been, listen, I've been targeted by this stuff too. The same people who, who despise you know, these, these mosques in, in Christchurch on 4chan, those were the people who were sending me death threats in 2016. So I'm, I'm, I'm vastly familiar with them, but that's not the same thing as suggesting that any argument can be pushed into a box of this causes, this causes evil to happen. Do you regret anything that you've said? Of, of course. In this area? For instance, uh, let's see, in, in this particular area. So I regret the phrasing of a tweet that I sent in 2010. Uh, so there was a tweet that I sent in 2010 where I talked about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The tweet was meant to refer to the leadership of Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. And instead, it overbroadly said Israelis versus Arabs, as in like the Israeli-Arab conflict. And it suggested that Israelis like to build things. And it said Arabs are, are fond of blowing things up and living in sewage. I was specifically referring to Hamas, as I made clear in a follow-up tweet. But the tweet itself, the original tweet, is is poorly stated, badly worded, and obviously on its own, egregiously bad. So, you know, that's one that, that, that is nine, I nine years ago. I mean, I'd, I suppose a lot of us would love to say that the last tweet we regretted was nine years ago. I mean, I, if you want to see a list of all the things I regret, I have a full list of them that I've put up on Daily Wire. I mean, I literally have a running list of all the things that I've said that I either regret or feel were taken out of context. And it's dozens of items long. I mean, I've been writing a weekly column since I was 17 years old. I'm now 35. I have 130,000 well, tweets. Very happy to hear your conf- confession, Ben. <laughs> but let, let, let's uh, come to a saying that you're very famous for, that facts don't care about your feelings. But you might say in the last three years, voters on left and right have rather abandoned technocratic politics or so-called evidence-based politics in favour of something else, something more urgent, more direct, something more populist. Wouldn't it be more accurate to say that modern politics is about feelings and feelings don't care that much about facts? Yeah, I think that's a more accurate statement of where we are politically. And that's sort of what I wrote the book to, to contest. I think what we've seen is, is a failure to acknowledge that we live in a shared reality and that facts have to be the basis of any contention that we're making. Instead, we are happy to draw emotionally manipulative narratives from isolated incidents or alternatively to ignore broad trends of facts in favor of, of particular narratives. And that obviously is dangerous stuff. I mean, I, I hope that I'm the kind of person, I try to be the kind of person who can be convinced by evidence that I'm wrong. Uh, but, you know, I think that we all have to do better at that. And, you know, obviously, look, I don't want to sound in, in writing a book about the basis of the West as though I am presenting tremendously new ideas here. This, this is not a book of new ideas, nor do I want to sound as though I am high and mighty in my pursuit of politics. I'm the only evidence-based person out there. I don't think that's true. I think sometimes I've been wrong. I think I'm sure I will be wrong in the future. But I at least try to be evidence-based in my politics. I hope that we could all be a little bit more evidence-based in our politics. What about President Trump? Then you said you're sometimes 
Trump. What determines actually which days you're feeling Trumpy and which days you feel a bit anti-Trump? It, it depends. Did you do something dumb or, or horrible that day? I mean, that, that's really what it's. That's really what it comes down to. Uh, you know, when I say sometimes Trump, what I mean is that he is the president of the United States. In this case, I would say I was sometimes Obama, meaning that if Obama did something that I liked, which was ex- exceedingly rare. Uh, then I was a fan of it. It's the same thing. So when President Trump says very foolish or counterproductive things, then that's bad. When he nominates a Supreme Court justice who says that he will hew to the original meaning of the Constitution, then that's good. Uh, I'm not going to criticize him when I think he's doing something right, and I'm not going to ignore it when I think he's doing something wrong. So border wall, right or wrong? He's right that there should be a border wall. He's wrong in his national emergency declaration. As a conservative, what is your response to the renewed attack by Donald Trump on the late Senator John McCain? Alleged stains against his his character. Uh, he goes basically back into a lot of, of grievances. Uh, good thing, bad thing? I mean, obviously it's a bad thing. I thought it was a bad thing when he suggested that John McCain wasn't a war hero because he'd been captured. Now, President Trump's vendetta against McCain uh, is longstanding and ugly. Uh, I don't think there's a reason for it. And I think that it's a it's a revelation of a deep character flaw. So he should take it back. Of course, he should take it back. I mean, when you say bad things, as I say, I have an entire list of things I've tried to take back and, and have apologized for over the course of my career. I think that that's called being a decent human being. Which candidates do you think would make the strongest tickets? I suppose we should go both sides of the aisle, shouldn't we? Republicans and Democrats. How's 2020 looking to you? Uh, well, I think that uh, on the Republican side of the aisle, there will be no serious primary challenge to President Trump. His approval rating is too high inside the Republican Party. And frankly, I think it would be a bad political idea, mainly because it would allow people to draw a conversation in which they suggest that true conservatives vote against Trump. Everybody else votes for Trump. I don't think that's actually a realistic description of the situation in the United States. So um, I, I would prefer, frankly, that no primary challenge be held and conservatism will have to battle it out post-Trump. So it's Trump for a good while longer. And on the other side, you've had your your wicked way, haven't you, with Beto O'Rourke and your, your <laughs> descriptions of his candidacy, which in, in some parts have made us laugh. But you clearly see him as absolutely the establishment candidate, a, a mistake for Democrats. Where do you think he stands now? I don't know that he'd be an electoral mistake for Democrats, because I, if I had to give odds right now, I'd say that President Trump is, is an odds-on favorite to lose in 2020. I think that he, he only has about a 40% shot of winning if I had to ballpark it. But I lost too much money on the last election betting to actually put money on it this time. So what, what's changed and what's gone so wrong in, you know, on the right in America if this president who came in swept all before him, upended all those liberal expectations, only, to your mind, has a 40% chance of winning again? Well, well I think that it hasn't gone better because, in part, President Trump is President Trump. He's a polarizing figure. He didn't take advantage of the opportunity of the presidency to grow his base. He didn't take an opportunity... To, to look like a, a more compassionate person, if, if you were capable of that. He didn't educate the public on all the things he's done right. He's distracted the public with all the things he's done wrong. If somebody could have smashed his phone the day he took office and he had not tweeted for, for the last two and a half years, then I think that his approval rating would be five to 10 points higher. But he, he's a constant obstacle in his own way. We shouldn't ask you for predictions. We're all there to be proved wrong on predictions. Who would you like to see after Trump? And who do you think would be the most effective Democrat? In terms of winning an election, I think that Joe Biden would, would probably win an election. I think Beto O'Rourke uh, has a good shot at winning an election. I think the, the person who is highest risk, highest reward for Democrats is probably Bernie Sanders. And he's most likely to lose an election to Trump simply because he's so polarizing in, in many of the same ways that, that Trump is polarizing. And he alienates a lot of suburban women who are the dynamic that, that President Trump has really lost since 2016. It's interesting. You've said something that caught my attention that you thought 2020, you've been kind enough to dwell on it, but that it wasn't that interesting. And your mind is on 2024. 
uh, as someone who often is cited as as being a kind of millennial interpreter of where the right is going in America, what's so interesting about 2024 for you that isn't interesting about the next election? The next election is, you know, Trump or bust for Republicans. The 2024, there's a wide open field and you could see a bunch of different dynamics coming into play. You could see a Trumpy kind of candidate who is trying to uphold the supposed populism of the president. You could see a Nikki Haley who is more interventionist on foreign policy and traditionalist Republican on economic policy. Uh, you could see a Ben Sass. Uh, you could see Dan Crenshaw, who's currently representative. Probably by then, I assume he would be governor or senator from Texas. Uh, you could see Ted Cruz make a comeback. There are just a lot of interesting characters. I mean, part of this is that President Trump is so overwhelming in sort of his his personal draw in terms of media attention that it basically eats up all attention on anyone else. And I don't find President you Trump... You haven't mentioned that... Ocasio-Cortez anywhere along the line. I'm oh, just intrigued by yeah, that. Yeah, because I don't think Ocasio-Cortez has any national appeal. I think that she's very appealing to the media. I think she's very appealing to a small base of very radical left-wingers. Her approval polls in New York this week were actually not all that good. She's less popular than Chuck Schumer is in New York. If she tried to run for Senate in New York, she would lose. If she tried to run for governor in New York, she would lose. But she does encompass exactly what the media are looking for, which is a person who is you know, quite attractive in her presentation, who looks like she's having fun, which is half the battle with her Instagram kind of stuff, uh, and who is also deeply radical and boils down complex arguments to bumper stickers like them or hate them. Do you respect her? In what sense? Politically. No, I don't respect her politics. I don't respect her intellectual command of the issues. I respect that she's been able to command enormous amounts of media attention, but no, I, I think that she's a bad expositor of her own values. I can't resist the last quick fire round if you'll just bear with me. So these can be yes or no's or haikus as you like. So who's the Democrat you'd most like to debate? With whom I would most like to debate or with whom I'd most like to discuss are two separate questions. Well, so you can answer both. It's a free world, as, as you keep reminding us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, most like to discuss. I think it'd be interesting to have a discussion with, with President Obama. I, I don't think that he'd be interested in it, uh, but I'd be interested to have a discussion with him because I think that he looks like and sounds like a person who thinks through issues. The person I'd most like to debate is Bernie Sanders because I think that his his ideas need a thorough airing and debunking. Okay, we're happy to host that anytime. We'll throw <laughs> that onto the pond and see where that lands. Given that you start your, your book with moral philosophy and a bit of a delve into history, your dream date with a moral philosopher, and I'm going to allow you alive or dead. That, oh, okay, wow. It's that kind of date. On the religious side, you know, I'm a religious Jew, so that means you, you are almost obligated religiously to say Moses. But uh, putting aside sort of religious philosophers, the, the two that come to mind immediately, well, three that come to mind immediately are Aquinas, Maimonides, and Locke. That's quite a date. That's a, that's a heavy night out, isn't it? Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll do some round robbing, 10-minute dating. It'll be a party. Shots with Locke. Uh, nightmare <laughs> date. The one that wouldn't work out. Uh, well, certainly I think a date with Marx would go very poorly. Number one, because he was not fond of the Jews. And number two, because he was wrong on pretty much everything. Last one. Promise. If you talk about God, he, she, or it. Well, I mean, it in the technical sense he in the homologic sense. Noted. Ben Shapiro, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And of course, we'd love to know what you think. Do facts trump feelings or is it the other way around? And did Ben Shapiro's defence of Western values appeal to you or leave you cold? Write to us, radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. And please do take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.